Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. Our articles are free. Our podcasts are free. Our videos are free. And we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spite carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show. They will not accept that a woman with a cock is a man. And that, that seems to be a fairly straightforward reality. And yet that is now warping women's sport and it's leading to the lunacies of the Tavistock Clinic and the lunacies as well of having rebadged men in women's prisons and it has no purchase with the vast majority of British people who do not wish transgendered people to be persecuted but nor do they wish to say something which is patently untrue. The whole project is rooted in a lack of reality. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by returning guest Rod Liddell. Rod doesn't need much of an introduction. He is one of Britain's best known and possibly most controversial journalists. He writes for The Spectator, The Sunday Times and The Sun. He has also made documentaries for TV and he was previously editor of the Today programme on Radio 4. Rod is known for his forthright views. He famously irritates the woke, but many other people appreciate his common sense and his willingness to kick against the pricks. Rod, I want to start off by asking you about one of the loves of your life, which is Millwall Football Club, who, not for the first time, are in a bit of hot water because some of their knuckle-dragging fans dared to boo as the footballers took the knee in the game against Derby. The meltdown over this has been really off the charts. What are your thoughts on the reason they booed and the response to their booing? The reason they booed is very straightforward, and you can see it uh, at the website, Millwall Online, where the fans go. And believe me, it's not a terribly politically correct website, (laughs) but nonetheless, I go on there all the time and once got into trouble about 10 years ago for being on there. They hate Black Lives Matter. They believe Black Lives Matter, Mm. and they support uh, initiatives to reduce racism. And as Millwall fans, we're very happy and honoured to vote for black and ethnic minority players as player of the year every year. The fans do that. There was no racism whatsoever involved in that booing of the taking a knee. They booed taking a knee because they loathe what BLM stands for. And it's a shame that the Northern clubs were prohibited from having fans in the ground as a consequence of COVID because there would have been a hell of a lot more booing 
and there was booing at Colchester, there was booing at West Ham, there was booing the first time it happened, which was at a major soccer league match in Texas, when everybody booed. (laughs) Everyone booed. This was back in, I think it was June. This stuff has no hegemony. It has no purchase whatsoever with the vast majority of people in the country. It is solely the preserve of virtue signaling companies, authorities and institutions who are pig ignorant a lot of the time about what BLM stands for and certain individuals, you know, the likes of Gary Lineker. We should all take our lead from Gary Lineker. (laughs) I think you're absolutely right to say that they were booing they were booing an organisation and what it represents. But, the, of course, the interpretation by sections of the media was that they, if you boo Black Lives Matter, that means you're booing black people, which is completely and utterly untrue. And, and football, more than any other sphere of life, proves that that's untrue because football fans cheer black players every single weekend. So when you say that the reason Millwall fans booed and and you've been looking at the online discussion forums and so on, when you say it's because they are really opposed to Black Lives Matter, what is it about Black Lives Matter that winds them up? What is it that would make them want to jeer at that organisation? The first thing is that they think it's divisive along with almost every manifestation of identity politics, which this country sees, (laughs) it's divisive and corrosive. They don't like that. The big thing about Millwall is you're all in it together. You know, we are all together and we stand and we represent Millwall. We don't represent anything else. There is no division between us. And so Black Lives Matter undercuts that for a start. But also, they are not stupid. They are less stupid than the Football Association. They have read that that matter is a Marxist organisation which wishes to see the destruction of capitalism and also the nuclear family. By and large, and I always thought the Premier League rather liked capitalism, but there we are, by and large, they don't agree with those hypotheses. They don't like Black Lives Matter spokespeople who say that their aim is not for equality, but for white man to become the slave of the black man, which is what one of the leaders of BLM in this country said. And many other things which have come out from Black Lives Matter's leaders in uh, in the USA. These people, it's, it's, the, same, it's the same as Brexit, Brendan. Mm-hmm. You know, these people are not thick. They are not thick. These are, these are not Neanderthals who are grunting racist abuse. These are people who have a principled objection to a foul organisation. Absolutely. I thought one of the most striking things about this whole affair is, and I think this is really the story of our times, which is that, you know, for a few months when, when fans were expelled from grounds, you couldn't go to a game, you had to watch it on TV. In that, in that period, the football authorities and, and the woke elites who surround them could get away with anything they wanted. And they all were taking the knee. They were flashing up anti-racist messages constantly to try and re-educate the masses, the, the stupid masses. They did all this stuff for months on end. And the media was cheering them and everyone saying how lovely this is. As soon as ordinary people returned, the very first time they got into the stadium, they made their own feelings apparent, which was that they don't want this anymore. They, they want to get rid of it. So there was something actually wonderful about the sound of Millwall booing, because that was the sound of people who had been expelled from public life for a few months as a result of COVID coming back and saying, screw this, we don't want this stuff. So there's a bigger story there, isn't there, about what happens when people are asked for their opinion, or in this case, not even asked for their opinion, but they express a view that runs counter to elite consensus opinion very often? I think it's even more than that. I think 
we've had nine to ten months where the public voice hasn't been heard. And under the, this kind of shroud of COVID, which I know you've been fighting against lockdowns ever since right from the beginning. I'm a relatively late convert to the fight against lockdowns. But, but nonetheless, for whatever reason, that lockdown has silenced the ordinary person to a degree which we haven't seen for a very long time. And so the authorities thought they could get away with this. Now, there are then complex questions about why the authorities would wish to go along with it. But that is all tied up with this incredibly depressing wokeness of institutions, corporations, and so on. A kind of giant uh, virtue signaling, which has grown and grown in the last five years, and which now you see when you look at an advert on the television, it will almost always be a black family or a black guy who, or a black woman who's selling the product effectively. Never an Indian. <laughs> we have 900,000 Indians in the country, one of our biggest immigrant groups. Never an Indian, never a Chinese guy, never a Bangladeshi. It's this patronizing, beating over the head with a kind of tokenistic political correctness, which, which I think infuriates people. Absolutely. I thought one of the striking things about the Millwall episode, just sticking with that for a moment, was the response to it from people you have been critical of for a very long time, the BBC universe, the Guardianistas, and those kinds of people, the response was instant and furious and unforgiving. And what was ironic, I thought, about the response is that they presented taking the knee and all this other stuff as a way of combating prejudice. But of course, as soon as something like this happens, as soon as Millwall fans make their views known, the prejudices of the chattering classes come flowing out like excrement you know neanderthals racist scum the lowest form of life really horrible stuff aimed at these fans what do you think that revealed about that section of society because they pose as right on politically correct caring kinder gentler politics but the contempt they have for ordinary people is sometimes incredibly visceral indeed they loathe the working class there are two things going on there as well one of them is that through some form of self-censorship, commentators who you wouldn't have expected to attack Millwall for the booing piled on in. So this is something which is now being seen as ubiquitous. Mm. You have to do it. And a lot of commentators, cowardly twats, in my opinion, <laughs> went along with that because it was the easy thing to do and because they know that they would be praised for doing it by their bosses. I think that is utterly pathetic. And it's happening more and more often, a self-censorship, which, which devolves, of course, from, from the corporate wokeness, which we've all become used to. The second thing is a complete non sequitur. The, the following game that Millwall played, they didn't take the knee. It was a good decision by the club. But instead, they linked arms, black players and white players, and held up an anti-racist banner. Even then, there were people in The Guardian, of course, Idiots saying they're still racist. What, what can we do? What can you do? <laughs> it's beyond my understanding, to be absolutely honest. Just going back a little bit, because I think the interesting thing about the Millwall affair is it's been a long time coming, or it's been a few months coming anyway. And I just want to take us back a bit to some of the events of this year, because this uh, I want to ask you about few, a few of the things that have happened this year, because this has been the maddest year for a very long time. And of course, one of the things that happened over the summer was 
the explosion of Black Lives Matter, the post-George Floyd moment, which took over the whole Western world, really. You had protests in Australia, protests across Europe, protests in the UK about someone who was killed by a cop in Minneapolis. I mean, it was a very strange phenomenon anyway. In the UK, I wanted to ask you about what you thought about the summer of the Black Lives Matter uprising, because it struck me that it was a very peculiar borderline Maoist affair. If you remember, statues being torn down, comedy shows being shoved down the memory hole, all these museums and galleries and libraries coming out and saying, well, we were founded by evil people and now we're ashamed of ourselves and you probably shouldn't visit us. Do you think it was hysteria? Do you think it was the explosion of all that pent-up self-loathing that's been growing in this country for a long time? How would you understand that moment? Why why Britain went insane in response to the killing of a man in Minneapolis? Yeah, it's remarkable, especially when you consider that two years previously, Black Lives Matter UK had been an utterly derided organisation within Great Britain. Uh, Those were the guys who I think staged a protest at London City Airport Mm because black people suffered more from global warming. And this was met by the press, the entire press, and every politician, everyone, with, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, <laughs> ludicrous. And so it was this marginal organisation set up to combat something which didn't exist, which, let's be fair and say, there is evidence in the US that some black people get a raw deal from the cops. There is no evidence in this country that no one is shot by the cops. <laughs> if I had my way were Home Secretary, more people would be shot by the cops. <laughs> and that's a different issue. But black people are not routinely shot by the cops over here. It, it's a completely non-secretary. And this suddenly got... It, it suddenly sort of struck a chord with the really thick woke into this carnival of ahistoricism and the tyranny of now, so that everything that happened in this country before about the 4th of May 1992 was racist, homophobic, colonialist, imperialist, white supremacist, the most ludicrous outpourings of bollocks, to the degree that we had Gandhi, Mm. of course. There's a subtlety there, of course, because I mentioned the Indian diaspora in the the UK, which is one of our largest immigrant groups, the largest by single number of 900,000, who were never in the papers, never in the papers. High educational attainment, high income, very low crime rate. (laughs) BLM doesn't like them Mm. one bit. You know, they are the answer to this divisiveness, you know, and they like that answer one one bit. But we even had Ted Hughes dragged into it. He may have had some relation to a man in 1592. (laughs) And the people who were doing this are supposedly serious people. There's that utter half-wit of the British Library, something jolly, Miss Jolly, and I bet you fucking isn't, (laughs) but Miss Jolly at the British Library, who said that racism was the invention of white people. I mean, okay, we're an inventive bunch. (laughs) It's so ludicrous. 
and no one buys it. No one outside that little section of society buys it. In terms of the statues, you, you mentioned Gandhi there. You know, of course, we have to drag down Gandhi now. Never mind all the wonderful contributions he made to human history. He said something racist in the late 1800s or whatever it was. But my favourite or the most horrifying, however you want to look at it, was the attacks on Abraham Lincoln. So a Lincoln statue in the UK was attacked. In, in America, a, a school that was named after Abraham Lincoln is now going to change its name because he wasn't sufficiently nice to black people, despite the fact that he fought a war to end slavery. You know, that counts for nothing these days. But in relation to Black Lives Matter and the way it swarmed through the UK, one of the things I thought was very interesting about, as you refer to them, the thick woke people or the contemporary left, it struck me that they were embracing a movement which is largely an export of the American empire. Because Black Lives Matter looks to me like one of America's most successful exports of recent times. It's kind of moved around the world like a juggernaut and swept aside everything in its way. And it's it, and it hasn't moved around the world by its own accord. It's been promoted by corporations. It's been promoted by the social media oligarchy. It's been supported by the political class. It, it strikes me that surely Black Lives Matter as a global corporate phenomenon. Surely that is the new orthodoxy, the new form that power takes. Whereas a handful of Millwall fans saying, screw this, it's a load of crap. That's the counterculture. Absolutely. And <laughs> it's interesting. There's a new book out by Helen Andrews. It's out in January uh, about boomers. And she's not a boomer. Basically, she's sticking it to the boomers and does so by highlighting six boomers who have contributed to what she calls the most ravaging of culture since the dissolution of the monasteries, is how she puts it. And she would include Black Lives Matter in that without question and the money it gets and the woke corporations. She has a go at the woke corporations. But also economists like Jeffrey Sachs, which ties it with what you were saying about American empire, which is that Sachs, of course, is obviously opposed to imperialism and loathes imperialism, as any right-thinking person would. And yet, as she points out, his very career has been a mirror of the imperial age in that he goes to countries with which he has no experience whatsoever and tells them what to fucking do. <laughs> and that's what he does, and then gets lots of money for it. <laughs> and and you're, you're absolutely right. The USA has exported this rubbish across the world. But on the money side of things, you know, Candace Owens has a point when she says, Actually, where's all this money going? Who's got it? <laughs> you know, I mean, because we don't know. I mean, they've been getting millions. Every time Google or Facebook or Apple wishes to feel good about itself, it bungs these idiots a million dollars. You know, where's the money going? What's it paying for? It's remarkable. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. On the issue of Black Lives Matter, what it represents, what it's doing, and its global influence, one of the things I find frustrating about this process, and Black Lives Matter in particular, is that for anyone who actually thinks racism is a really stupid, ugly phenomenon, 
Black Lives Matter, it seems to me, is setting back that cause by decades and decades. And, you know, you will be aware of this. You are one of the people who is outrageously called racist by woke idiots if you write a column that is slightly un-PC or if you make a joke that they disapprove of. And it, it seems to me that what we have is a situation where the noble cause of anti-racism has morphed into this kind of hyper-racial politics, which is obsessed with policing how people speak, obsessed with policing how the races relate to each other, obsessed with demonizing white people, especially white men, treating black people as victims and treating other ethnic minority groups as a problem if they are seen as too successful. You mentioned Indian Hindus in this country and some African migrant communities in this country are doing very well too. Literally so in America, where entrance exams have been scrapped for certain educational institutions because the Asians who come from the poorest parts of New York because the Asians do very well at them. <laughs> so it's become a madness. It's, 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 it's become a madness. Yes, yeah, so I was going to just say to you, uh, just on the divisiveness of this ideology, how do we tackle that? I mean, what is the way around that? Because that's one of the things that really does irk me when you have the people who are at the forefront of this movement, which is essentially re-racializing society. You know, you have people like Robin DiAngelo, author of White Fragility, making an absolute fortune from going around telling everyone that she's racist and therefore you must be racist too. And I always think to myself, look, just because you're racist doesn't mean I am. Don't don't project your prejudices onto me. But you have people like her and then, then of course you have other so-called race experts and every institution in the land engaging in unconscious bias training and trying to cleanse people's minds. It seems to me that the real tragedy here is that race is being reintroduced into public life after decades of people fighting to get it out of public life. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, and I think that this may be where the change will come, the black people of the USA and British African Caribbean people will surely someday rebel against this this infantilizing of them. And they are needed, of course, by the woke left, because without them, the woke left doesn't have a majority anywhere. And so they predate upon this class, consign them to victimhood and infantilize them. And then you ask, how, how do we stop it? My hope is that, and this was echoed in the, in the presidential election, that more and more black people in America but also over here we'll start saying, we're not victims. We are not victims. We may be victims in a class sense, and I don't have much doubt about that, but we are not victims because of the colour of our skin, and this is all diverting attention away from where the real inequalities are, which is between rich and poor. Yeah. You know, that's what you would hope would happen, because there's some other hope. I noticed that the government has now announced that civil servants no longer have to do their unconscious bias training. There could be some kickback from this government. But as ever, Brendan, as you and I both know, and the one thing which whatever political differences we've had over the years, and there haven't been that many, the one thing we always cleave to is that the mass of people have got the common sense. Mm. They are the people who know, you Mm. know, the the people who took us out of the European Union and the people who don't like Black Lives Matter. Mm. They are the same people. Absolutely. And I think that tension and that conflict between 
elite consensus opinion and the wisdom of the crowd, I think that's going to, going to intensify. I think the Millwall booing was a snapshot of things to come, which I think is very, very, very exciting. The other phenomenon I want to ask you about, which has been around for a number of years, but also really exploded this year, is cancel culture. And the number of cancellations grows all the time. The latest victim or, well, potential victim, she may well turn it around, is a friend of ours, Julie Birchill, who has had her book on cancel culture cancelled because she got into a Twitter spat, which is never a wise thing to do in my view, with Ash Saka and made some derogatory comments about Muhammad and his wife in defence of you and a column that you wrote eight years ago about why you could never be a school teacher because you might be attracted to some of the young people. What have you made of that particular example of cancel culture? I think it's quite an interesting one. Well, it's shocking. That's where we should begin from, to say it's (laughs) shocking. And I won't write any more books for Little Brown. Mm. My last book was with Little Brown, not anymore. And I would advise everyone to boycott Hachette books and all its subsidiaries, including Little Brown, until they learn about the necessity for freedom of speech. You're right, of course, this, it all started with a Twitter spat. I don't go on Twitter. I don't have a, a, an account with Twitter. I think if I did, I'd be sacked within, you know, 12 hours. <laughs> it is a realm of the fucking deranged. I mean, the genuinely deranged. <laughs> the thing that I'd written about, well, it was a joke, obviously. Obviously, I'm not going to shag 13-year-old girls. It was a joke. It was a joke about getting into the teaching profession and so on and what you need to do to get into the teaching profession. And they assumed this from eight years ago. (laughs) I mean, it's just beyond, beyond my expression. And Julie, probably ill-advisedly, bless her, waded in and uh, stuck it to them. And all she said, it was put a bit abruptly, but she's Julie, for fuck's sake, you know that why are you worried about this when you worship a paedophile? (laughs) Of course, Aisha, one of Mohammed's brides, was very young at the time he married her. Now, you know, okay, what I would say about that is that you can't have your cake and eat it. Things were probably a bit different in 660 AD in regards to the way we <laughs> children. I'm not going to have a go at Mohammed right now. You know, what what he did was absolutely par for the course for back then. But at the same time, it's nonetheless true. <laughs> you know, so she's effectively been cancelled for saying something which was true. Mm. It's interesting that you say, I mean, it was abrupt and it was sharp. And as you say, that's Julie Birchall. And I think one of the irritating things about this is that she was clearly hired to write this book because she's Julie Birchall and then she was effectively sacked because she's Julie Birchall which is and she she does what Julie Birchall's been doing for a very long time which is you know cause offense to certain people of course one of the striking things about this affair was the use of the term Islamophobia and I want to just to get your your latest thoughts on that I know you don't particularly have truck with this term you and I have both been nominated for the Islamophobe of the year award I don't think either of us has, has ever won it which is a shame but I came second once <laughs> there you go good achievement so in relation to that term and the use of well the use of the term phobia more broadly but specifically islamophobia i mean it it is now becoming a parody of itself isn't it it's now becoming so obviously an attempt to punish people for criticizing or 
speaking openly about aspects of Islam. Yes, and there are pretty grave dangers with it as well. I mean, the obvious example was was the terrible murder in Paris of the history teacher who had dared to share some representation of Muhammad with his class, having given them the option to opt out of seeing this. And under our law, as was drawn up by politicians in the House of Commons and has been passed around to various councils and has been agreed by various city councils across Great Britain, to link Islam with that terrorist attack would be a case of Islamophobia. But how could we not? <laughs> I mean, it is impossible not to. And so that's where the problem lies. And, you know, I'm not someone who loathes Islam full stop at all. I think Islam, and we may differ on this, but I think Islam retains in this country something which the rest of us have lost, which is, you know, a certain humility before God, for example. Uh, which we've long since lost, a respect for the elderly, uh, a respect for the for the traditional family, and a respect for charitable giving, a, a whole bunch of stuff which we've kind of done away with to our great discredit, and Islam still has all that. But there are elements of Islam which simply aren't compatible, and one of them is a tendency towards anti-Semitism, one of them is uh, a sexism towards women. Another is a somewhat primeval approach to gender. <laughs> you know? and, and so all those things are things which I think we have a right to question. And I talk to leaders of Muslim groups all the time, and I'm shortly to go to Pakistan to talk to some Muslim MPs there about Islam in this country and what the problems are, where is the difficulty to fit in and everything. And we'll do everything I can to help to improve relations. But the bottom line is we have to have a freedom of discussion about this stuff. We have to be able to talk about it, you know? I, I actually agree with all of that. And I really oppose those people who say that we've got to stop building mosques in, in the West and we've got to ban the Quran and we, we can't, and we can't have Islam at all. Cause I think that's an incredibly authoritarian approach, very illiberal. And in fact, if you think back to when largely Muslim parents were protesting at schools in Birmingham because they were sick I was of all this. Yeah, I was completely on the side of those people. They were sick of all the gender fluidity nonsense, all the LGBT stuff that was being fed to very young children. They will be the next people to leave Labour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a huge percentage of people. When our Muslim community actually looks up and sees what the Labour Party stands for, that block vote can no longer be taken for granted. But I think in, in relation to Islam, my, my issue with Islam and Britain in the 21st century has always very simply been the attempts to censor any discussion or the attempts, the attempts to demonise any discussion. And so is it, for me, it's entirely a question of freedom of speech. And on, on that, you mentioned Samuel Paty, the French school teacher who was beheaded in public for the crime of teaching children about freedom of speech. Obviously, the act itself was completely horrific. But what was also horrific was the silence of the supposed defenders of moral life here in the UK, just a stone's throw from France, our neighbouring country. You know, I, I know more about what the English bishops think of the internal market bill than I do what they think about a beheading in France and 
the massacre in a church in Nice when three people were killed for being Christians, literally Christian martyrs who were killed a couple of days after the Patti beheading. They didn't say anything. You know, these supposedly virtuous people did not stand up, did not offer solidarity, did not talk about the fact that in France in the 21st century, people are being slaughtered and beheaded for being Christians or for believing in freedom. What do you think motors that cowardice that we often see in the UK religious, political, cultural establishment when it comes to talking about problems of Islamic extremism? Well, it's not just the bishops, of course. Owen Jones didn't say very much about it either. You know, none of the left did. And you wouldn't be surprised by that because they never do, any more than they did about Rotherham. You don't see Owen Jones writing about Rotherham very often. And it's because I, I think at the heart of it is the fact that their entire program is fallacious and deluded, and it's based on contradictions. And they cannot allow that stuff in to their thought process because it destroys the argument. And we've seen that time and time again. You can see it, frankly, in the battle between the feminists who are called TERFs, and the transgender-supporting feminists. It's a bit like when when Samuel Paté was killed, it's that thread on the jumper, a jumper, a mohair jumper knitted by a moron, that you pull on that thread and the whole fucking thing comes mm. apart because there's no basis to it. There's, it. It is not rooted in reality. It is not rooted in the real world. They are incapable of understanding that there is an element of Islam believed by rather more people than we would like to admit, which is offensive in, in the proper meaning of the term, that it wishes to attack other faiths. And they cannot accept that. And they, you will talk to them about it, and they say, well, well, what about the Baptist church in Texas? No, no, look, I'm talking about the people who do most of the terrorism in the world today. You know, I'm not talking about five Appalachian fucking half-wits. I'm talking about the five pillars of Islam, about, about Islamic countries which sponsor this terrorism. And they will not accept it. And yet it's a reality. But there are so many other realities they also will not accept. They will not accept that a woman with a cock is a man. And that, that seems to be a fairly straightforward reality. And yet that is now warping women's sport to the degree that women will soon no longer win anything because women with a cock will win everything. And it's leading to the lunacies of the Tavistock Clinic and the lunacies as well of having rebadged men in women's prisons. It is, it, and it has no basis in reality, and it has no purchase with the vast majority of British people who do not wish transgendered people to be persecuted, but nor do they wish to say something which is patently untrue, which is that someone who's transitioned is a, is a, is a woman. The whole project is rooted in a lack of reality. And there are little ways you can discern this. The Guardian was the first newspaper to start censoring and stopping comments below the line in its pieces. Because suddenly they saw that all these pieces were saying, what a load of fucking rubbish. <laughs> what the, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> and you've seen that grow. So comments below the line now, even in the Daily Mail, if it's on a subject about Islamophobia, for example, they will be censored. Because they know that the public, and on Black Lives Matter, back to where we began, 
that you know people have no time for this, and that those comments actually undermine the whole project. You know that people realise there's no sense to this. Following on from your comments about women with cocks, I think one of the most striking things politically about the cult of transgenderism, and in my view, what has sometimes become the hysteria of transgenderism, I think that's the only way to describe what's been done to children and the way in which feminists are shouted down and sometimes even physically attacked as if they are witches. I think that what's interesting about it politically is is the way in which political words are being redefined all the time. So the bigots now are people who want to defend women's sex-based rights or women's sports or women's right to go to a changing room and get undressed without seeing a bloke with a cock walking around. And the bigots are also the people who say, you know, we should stop offering medical correction to young lesbians, which is essentially what some of these NHS trusts do, right? When a 13 or 14-year-old lesbian comes in and she's basically corrected and turned male. And the Kira Bell case, I thought, was a very good pushback against that. So isn't it striking that someone like you or someone like me or some of the feminists we know, we're called bigots for defending women and young gay people from this insane assault on their rights? Yes, absolutely. It's the lesbian community particularly which objects to the transgender project because it may well be that exactly as you say, girls who are a bit tomboyish in school are identified. And instead of either becoming not lesbians, it's such a disavowal of feminism that women can be anything. They can be anything. But no, no, if they if they act in a certain way, they have to be men. And it's got to the point, and lesbians are worried, it may well be the case that they die out as a species entirely, and we will have to reintroduce them, much as we've done with red kites in the children's sort of communities of them, because they will become an endangered species. I find it staggering, but at the same time, and you give your support there to the to the feminist cause. Well, sure, I do, you know, and I was brought up on 70s feminism and, and even Valerie Solanas and people like that and Shulamath Firestone. But they kind of made their bed, <laughs> you know, in their attacks. Again, that divorcing from reality, whereby feminists would argue that women are better than men, women are subjugated by men, Women are the same as men. All three thoughts held simultaneously, and all three mutually contradictory. You know, and they have the same problem with reality over whether gender is a social construct or is actually something which, you know, is, is in, in innate and hardwired. So there is an element there when, when I see Suzanne Moore, Mrs. Moore, Mrs. Moore, I don't know if you remember her passage to India, and we were all doing that a few weeks ago this is more you made your own bed Suze you fucking lie in it love you know yeah we published a, a good piece on Spiked by Emily Hill making a very similar point which was very persuasive about how feminists like Suzanne Moore actually did make this bed in terms of some of the gender ideas they've been pushing for a long time I think there are a handful of feminists who spotted very early on that this was problematic. One of them was um, Jermaine Greer, for example, Julie Bindle. There's a few like that. And I'm hoping that one of the consequences of the current witch hunting of any woman who dares to speak out against transgenderism, I'm hoping one of the consequences might be 
a self-criticism and a look at some of the roles that they played in terms of creating this political climate. Uh, you're an old Marxist, Brendan. Self-criticism <laughs> doesn't afflict the modern left. They have no concept of Leninist self-criticism whatsoever. <laughs> You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Actually, that does bring me on to my next question. That You're absolutely right, as it happens, that the inability of any of them to practice self-criticism. And I wanted to ask you, we're just over a year on from when millions of people, including working class Labour voters, voted for Boris Johnson, voted for this foppish, eaten, cosmopolitan liberal, because Labour had become such a complete and utter disaster, colonised by woke middle-class graduates who were utterly contemptuous towards Brexit, towards the working classes, or gammon, as they call them. Gammon essentially means pig, of course. You know, the pigs of, of working-class Britain, they, they loathe those people. We're a year on from there. And speaking of self-criticism, what is very striking is a lot of these people have the same levels of arrogance as they did a year ago, even though they caused the working classes to abandon the Labour Party in an unprecedented way, even though they caused the Tory party, who they claim to loathe, to get the largest democratic mandate for a very long time. Firstly, what do you think Labour can do to recover its traditional outlook, or perhaps it can't do anything? And why do you think they're so incapable of having a reckoning with what they've done to the Labour Party? It's very difficult for Labour. Uh, it's a process that was put in train by Mandelson, Blair, Campbell and so on, back at the beginning of the 90s, the late 80s, even Neil, a leader I adored, Neil Kinnock, saw that what they considered the traditional working class was no longer enough to get Labour over the line in a general election. So you turn your attention, obviously, to the middle class. And through that kind of osmosis, Labour has now become, much as have the Democrats, the party of the affluent. I mean, I, I think there is no argument with that. And there's a huge problem then for Keir Starmer, who I think is you know, reasonably sensible, even if he does take a knee at the drop of a hat, and I think would take a knee to anything which came in, in view, if it gave him an extra you know, couple of points in the opinion polls. It is very difficult to turn that around, because they have alienated the working class voters. Furthermore, they are now dependent upon that affluent swathe of Britain particularly London, but also some of the more affluent parts of our inner cities, Cambridge, Oxford, Bristol, even to a degree Manchester and Newcastle. So they are dependent now upon those votes. You lose them, they've got nothing. You know, you lose them and the Muslims and the students. Let's assume the students always stay with them, but you lose the Muslims, you lose the affluent. So that's their new block. And it's very, very difficult for them to get away from it. I think for the working class, you need a new party to represent them, which is patriotic, which cares about the family, the community, and communitarianism, and has and does not agree with women having cocks. That would be my manifesto. <laughs> I think I think that's the Social Democrats. I, I I don't quite see what Labour can do. I think it it's a real cleft stick because it it can undo some of the idiocies 
of the Corbyn years, it can reduce some of the loathing of Great Britain, which really plays badly amongst working class voters. But it risks losing the new supporters it's got. And who do they turn to? One thing, of course, that has completely turned politics on its head this year, or promises to do so, is an issue that you and I initially disagreed on, but we agree on a bit more now, which is the lockdown and the response of this country and many other countries to COVID-19. Just to kick off, uh, could you just explain to our listeners how you changed your mind slightly on that and what position you've come to now? Yeah, I can try and do it in the way that Jack Straw or Matt Hancock would attempt to uh, uh, explain a difficult thesis. <laughs> i tell you what it was. I think that, that our government was terribly slow to react to the virus at a time when we didn't know what the virus was capable of. It was slow to close the borders and it was slow to lock down. And I agreed with the first lockdown. I thought it was fine. I thought, you know, we do not know. Let's get the measure of this fucking thing first. I could even now, I could even now go along with a permanent lockdown. I can, I can see the point of that. What I cannot see the point of is this ridiculous hokey-cokey we have where there are tears and one minute you're in, the next minute you're out. None of it works. The World Health Organization has told us it doesn't work. And I also am mindful of what my wife said back in March. And she was right. She was right about this, which is you know, when will all this be over? And I said, oh, we'll just give it till, just give it to the end of July. When will all this be over? July, well, give it till October. And so it goes on, and so it goes on. And I think the sad truth of this is, uh, and it's a terrible thing to admit that one's wife was right, (laughs) is that I don't think it'll be terribly different this time next year. One of the things you've written about, which I think a lot of people will agree with because the the people who criticized the very first lockdown, we were very small in number. We were very unpopular. I mean, I I got so many abusive messages and uh, there were Twitter storms and we lost readers at spite. We, We even lost donors at spite. Thankfully, over time, when people realized this was going on far longer than they thought it would, we started to get new readers and new supporters. So that was all good. But at, at the very beginning, it was a difficult thing to criticize. But what you've written about is the the fact that when the when the first lockdown came into force, which we all thought was going to be for about three weeks, there was a sense of social solidarity. There was a sense that people would would go along with this. We'd do it. It was a it was a sacrifice worth making because this is a virus we don't know particularly well. We don't quite know how dangerous it is or what it does. And so people were in it together in that sense. But you've argued that over time, as one would expect, that has withered, and and what it has given rise to is something very different, which is the government making up rules as it goes along and people being pressured or shamed into following those rules. And and that's a different story altogether, isn't it? A completely different story. And yes, you're right. I think there was a bit of social solidarity about the first lockdown. And yeah, I ought to point out that I'm probably minded by the fact that I rather like lockdown. I don't have to meet people. You know, I just, (laughs) just fucking great, mate. You know, I'm one of the winners from lockdown. But no, you're absolutely right. It became clear to me that we had to denationalize it, that we had to franchise the people to make intelligent decisions by themselves. We now know that COVID has a relatively benign lethality, that basically 
what what are the figures? 99% of people are over the age of 85 or or over the age of 83 who die of it. And most of 90% of them have got underlying health issues. We know that its lethality is much more benign than we were told back in February and March. So you're left with a position of either saying, and I do see the point of this, I do see the point of saying, no, we have to defeat this virus. I don't know how you defeat the virus. I mean, I think that's a, a misnomer. Uh, I, I can see the point of a full lockdown, but what would seem to be more sensible, both for the economy and for the people, is that we allow the people to make their own rational decisions about what risks they take and inform them about those risks in advance. The only caveat to that, I would say, is that, you know, my wife, amongst many others, back in March and April and May, were pointing to Sweden as the uh, standard bearer for no lockdown policies. And Sweden is now probably the worst country in Europe per head of population for deaths. That matters only if you, it's about weighing up the deaths, it's about weighing up risk. You know, it will be interesting to see, and indeed chilling to see what happens in two or three years time, when we get the cancer death statistics through for those people who weren't able or didn't want to or couldn't get their treatment, and for heart disease and for strokes and other ailments like that. I I think that's the problem. But, yeah, were you right back in March? It's a terrible thing for me to say. I'm not sure. I I, I was kind of in favour of that first lockdown and still have some regard for it. Not least the fact that it was so quiet and lovely, Brendan. <laughs> it was very quiet. I think the way I saw it, and particularly as time went on, I started to see it like this, is that we possibly made a, a double-edged mistake. So we locked down healthy people, healthy young people who are productive and who work and who contribute to the economy, put them all under house arrest and kept them under house arrest even when we knew the virus was far, far more lethal for older people than it is for younger people who don't die from it very much at all. We locked down the healthy working population and to a certain extent we failed to lock down or failed to protect older vulnerable people, particularly people in care homes where all sorts of terrible things occurred. So that lack of focus that lack of being clear-headed about who the who the potential victims were and what resources we should allocate to protecting them and keeping them safe and also keeping them free you know creating the conditions in which they can still have a good life even as we shield them from sections of the population that lack of focus i think has really proved quite catastrophic because it means older people died in possibly larger numbers than they ought to have and the economy has gone down the toilet. Yeah, I think I think the care home stuff will come back to haunt the government at some point. There's got to be an inquiry, and I think it will come back to haunt that thing which we're all advised to take a knee to every fucking Thursday, the National Health Service, because I don't think the NHS has handled this particularly well, and I don't think the government has handled this particularly well. But then if you look across the world, in fairness... Not many countries have handled it terribly well. There is no great outcome. My party leader, Will Clouston, put it quite well back in April when he said it was all about proximity, i.e. that if you walk past a pond and a child is drowning, you obviously dive in and rescue that child, but you do nothing about the child you can't see a mile away who is starving to death or whatever. And so we react to that spike in COVID deaths 
because they were there, real, seeable, and countable, but were incapable of reacting to the other deaths, which which will undoubtedly occur as a consequence through, you know, cancers and heart disease and so on, because they didn't figure into the proximity argument. Okay, so just to wrap things up now, I want to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on how 2021 might go, not necessarily predictions for what will happen, but what you think the vibe of 2021 might be. Because I kind of flit between optimism, I'm a generally optimistic person, and then pessimism, because a lot of the great things that have happened over the past few years, which is the vote for Brexit, the assertion of people's democratic power, the desire of people to shake politics up, a lot of that has been pushed back to a certain extent by the crises of this year, by the the victory of uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris in particular terrifies me. The lockdowns, all these other things that have taken place. So I wonder where you stand on whether there is still potential in the vote for Brexit, the booing of Millwall fans, the well of common sense that exists, whether there is is still potential in those things to be harnessed and marshaled and, and used to push back against all the crap that we've had for the past few years and in this year in particular? Yes, though I'm less optimistic about it than I was a year ago when it did seem that, I mean, if you remember back in December 2019 and indeed January 2020, this was a government which was going to roll back the wokeness and it was a government which was going to, for example, sort out the BBC. An awful lot of that has gone from the Conservative Party. And I think that Boris is now in a position where he has to be far more cognizant of what the social liberals within the Conservative Party want, given that he probably is one of them in the end, than would have been the case a year ago when that election was fresh in his mind and when he knew that it had been won at least partly as a consequence of traditional working class voters loathing the progressive agenda of the left and indeed the Conservative Party. So, you know, they've done a few things. There are people like Kemi Badenoch, Priti Patel, who are capable of representing that strand of opinion which really feels that this has gone too far. Whether they have the same say in future, I have my doubts about that. I think we probably need a new political party, Brendan, or perhaps one which has been in existence for a long time, but has come back. (laughs) I'm not terribly optimistic that the Tories can do any of that at the moment. I don't think that Nigel Farage's reform party makes much sense. He was at his charismatic best with Brexit, and I think we've just about got Brexit. The Labour Party still doesn't hold out much hope for the working class that I can see. Mm And indeed, its vote hasn't gone up massively amongst those old voters who switch sides. So, yeah, I mean, we still stick to our guns, but I think I'm less optimistic than I was a year ago. Rob Little, thank you very much. Cheers, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at 
www.spiked-online.com.